everybody. Welcome back to In The Loop. This is a podcast by Texas Guadalupe. We are the University of Texas Hyperloop team, and I am your co-host, Gavin Nader. I am the head of business, and I'm a senior studying economics. And today, we have a guest host. Hi, my name is Uriel Buitrago. I was the frame lead for Texas Guadalupe last year, and I'm currently pursuing my master's in computer science. So today, we are joined by Gary Bond. Mr. Bond worked for Boeing for 26 years, becoming a technical fellow there, and then joining Solve as a technical fellow in 2020. Gary is a composite specialist, a U.S. Air Force veteran, and an entrepreneur. And in his free time, you can find Gary up in the sky in his Grumman AA-5B Tiger. Welcome to the show, Gary. Thanks. Glad to be here. So yeah, every time I log into LinkedIn, I get very jealous because I see these epic pictures and videos of you flying. Um, and I actually have a couple of videos here. So I guess to start, like, I think I saw on LinkedIn that you hadn't flown in 17 years. Yeah. <laughs> what made you want to come back and like how did it feel to get back in that seat uh felt incredible it was great um yeah i never really wanted to get away from it it just that um we um started a family and that was my priority and i just felt like i wasn't flying enough to be safe so um kind of grounded myself and and uh helped raise my family my my kids are now 19 and 16 and i've got one off in college so starting to get some more time opened up and, and uh, just decided to jump back into it. Okay, cool. Yeah. I used to follow a couple like bush pilots on YouTube. Yeah. And it's so cool how they just, one of them lived on an airstrip and they would just like walk out of their front door, get in their plane and fly to like a restaurant three hours away. Have you ever done anything like a, a meetup or like just fly to go get breakfast or something? Oh, sure. Yeah, we do the the um, a lot of places have uh, a breakfast on Saturday mornings, a lot of small airports uh, in order to draw people in. And uh, that's a lot of fun. You get together with a lot of people that are, you know, have similar interests in aviation and get to see some some kind of cool planes that you might not otherwise see. So that's always a, a blast. Um, yeah, I would love to live in a place where, you know, my garage is my hangar. That would be awesome but I, I don't know if that'll yeah. ever happen <laughs> <laughs> yeah so why this plane in particular ah well um so um there were a lot of factors that went into to purchasing um the airplane i i, I was looking for something that was uh, pretty reliable um low maintenance low annual inspection costs um something that uh, would have fairly low insurance costs. Um, so that kind of directed me towards a single engine, fixed prop, fixed gear. Um, but I wanted something that went a decent amount of speed and um, could carry a decent amount of loads. So I wanted something that could you know, travel cross country and, and actually be a useful, um, both personal and, and professional instrument. So uh, that kind of limited the, the, the target that was out there. And, and eventually I, I settled on uh, the Grumman Tiger is being kind of the best mix of, of all the different things. It's not the fastest airplane out there. It's doesn't carry the most load. Um, but as far as the, the combination of all the attributes that I was looking for, it was, it was definitely the best choice for me. And then I think I saw that you said you've flown to like visit your son in college. What, yeah. is that, what is that process like as a private pilot to just get in a plane and like go I don't know. Go fly somewhere. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah. So, you know, most of I, I have, I'm, I'm only a VFR pilot. So visual flight rules, I haven't gotten my instrument rating yet. That's next on my list. 
so essentially I have to fly when the weather is decent. Um, it has to have sufficient visibility. This, the cloud ceilings have to be a certain height. Uh, <clears throat> and then basically I just um, uh, call up the tower at Huntsville. I can go to my plane at any time, um, go, get my plane ready, call up the tower and tell them where I'm going. And they give me clearance and I take off and and um, that's basically it. There's there's very little um, kind of uh, bureaucracy about it. There's a great deal of freedom to be able to just pick up at any time and and head out any time that I want to go. Um, I don't I don't necessarily have to file a flight plan. I can kind of fly whatever route I want when I'm VFR as long as I stay clear of you know particular airspace and weather. Um, but it's uh, it's a great uh, freedom to be able to do that. Wow. Yeah, that seems crazy. It's basically just getting in your car and flying somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty much. <laughs> Do you have any yeah. big future trips planned that you're excited about? Um, well, I'm, I'm working, I'm going to be working on my instrument rating. And then I think that, um, you know, maybe a, a big trip for me would be to go out back to Arizona where my, my parents live, um, where I grew up and uh and go visit them so that's a probably a two-day trip for me um an overnight stay probably somewhere um probably could do it in one day but it would be a long day and and i might not be safe at the end of it so i'll probably break it up into two okay cool your plane will probably come up um again i just thought it was so cool <laughs> look at this picture <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's right now in pieces, which is kind of cool in itself. I'm doing its annual inspection, uh, doing an owner assisted. So I'm not a A and P, an airframe and power plant mechanic, um, but I'm working with one. And um, to me, it's the best way to learn your plane is is to actually tear it apart and understand how it's built from the ground up. So it's been a real learning experience for me, and and I've really been enjoying it. Of course, I can't wait to put it back together and actually go fly again. But but uh, we'll get there. So was it a kit? Definitely. No, it's not a kit plane. It's actually, it's a certified uh, plane. Um, but um, I, I feel like uh, after this, I've, I've put most of it back together almost like a kit. So <laughs> yeah, I, I actually learned, started to, to, I learned to fly um, based on helping uh, uh, my, my CFI, my certified flight instructor, put together a Lancer 4P. And that's a, that's a highly composite uh, kit plane. And essentially, I traded my my knowledge of composites for his knowledge of flight, and that's how I, I got my private pilot license. Okay, and wow! So did that's you awesome. get your private license recently, or was that a long time uh, ago? Yeah, so I got my private pilot license back in. Let's see, that would be 2000, 2001, something like that. Uh, yeah, is when I got it. Your private pilot license basically never expires. Um, you have a medical that you have that expires and you have um, currency requirements. So you're required to have taken off and landed um, a minimum number of times within 90 days of flying. And, and there's things like that. So <clears throat> my, my private pilot license, basically, I still had during that entire 17 years when, when I wasn't flying, but I didn't have my medical. I didn't have my currency. I had to get you know, checked out and, and kind of recertified to fly again. Yeah. I, uh, I guess I had to go through kind of a similar process, but definitely not as, as stringent as yours because I got my private pilot license for unmanned aircraft systems. Oh, uh -huh. So I'm, uh, 
technically allowed by the FAA to, to fly drones commercially. Oh, cool. That's something that I enjoy. Yeah. So, but for me, I have to renew it every two years. Okay. Yeah. That's very cool. It's a lot of fun. Okay. So going back sort of to your beginning of your career, um, mm -hmm. what was your time like in the air force and then how did you end up at Boeing? Yeah. So, um, my time in the air force was, was really good for me personally. Now, professionally, it really didn't do much for me. I, I, I didn't do anything having to do with planes whatsoever. So, you know, like 10% of the air force works on is somehow associated directly with planes and 90% of the air force is supporting that 10%. Right. So I was in the 90%. I was actually working in the dining hall of a hospital. So I, I basically had nothing to do with, with aviation whatsoever. Um, but what it did do for me was teach me a lot about um, uh, self-discipline. Um, a lot of times, I think the limits that we put on ourselves are, are just that, limits that we put on ourselves. and They're not real limits. And I found that I was able to go further than I thought and be able to do more than I was able to before. So I, I do know that for sure. Um, I was, I had gone to, the, to, to college for a couple semesters before I joined the Air Force. And after I was in the Air Force and went back to college, I was a much better student. I was way more disciplined, um, much more focused, and uh, just, just able to do a lot more. So I think from a personal standpoint, it was really good for me. Um, and then I got out, uh, went back to the University of Arizona in Tucson, finished up my degree there, uh, was looking around for jobs, um, always wanted to be in, in, in uh, aerospace and aviation. But at the time, this was 1994. Um, the aerospace world was going through some pretty difficult times. There was a lot of defense mm -hmm. drawdowns, uh, end of the cold war, things like that. So, um, I didn't really think I was going to be able to get into anywhere. I was planning on working on for Intel or AMD or something like that, because there's a lot of that in Arizona and chip manufacturers. It was really hot at the time looking for material scientists. Um, and my background was not in composites. So I, I, I'm trained, I was trained as a, a ceramist or a metallurgist, um, surface science and things like that. So um, when I got a call from McDonnell Douglas in St. Louis to come out for an interview, I was like, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> I didn't think there was any way I was going to get the job, but, um, but uh, they hired me. And uh, so that's how I ended up going to St. Louis, working for McDonnell Douglas 1994 and then in 1997 they merged with Boeing and so it's been with Boeing ever since so 26 years combined of McDonnell Douglas and Boeing so your sort of like dream job called you yeah right That's crazy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> pretty amazing yeah it's such a great story were you so you, you mentioned that you were in college then you went to the Air Force and came back were you studying material science or engineering Prior to the Air Force? No? No. no. Yeah. So that's a good question, actually. Uh, my original major um, after I left, when I graduated high school and went down to my first semester at the University of Arizona was in fine arts photography. So it had absolutely nothing to do with engineering whatsoever or technology. Um, I still love photography. I mean, that's one of the things, one of the reasons why, I, you know, I love to do the, the videos and things like that for, for, for my plane. Um, but it was not something I could really see myself do, making a career out of. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and, and at the time I just wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I figured, well, if nothing else, the air force will help give me some direction. So, um, that's why I joined. And then, uh, while I was in the air force, I changed my major to English. 
Um, so I was an, I was a fine arts major. Then I went to English, um, which I still love to write and things like that. And that's actually a really useful skill for engineers. Um, it's probably a, a weakness, I would say, in general of a lot of engineers is being able to write well. Um, but then after that, um, and, and actually after the Challenger um, tragedy in 1986, um, I, I decided that I wanted to do aerospace engineering. So I switched to aerospace engineering and then eventually switched over to material science and engineering. So it's kind of a long, strange trip for me. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, I guess I get, I got to say, uh, like drones for the same reason, like photography and just wanting to pick up a drone and take nice videos and pictures of beautiful landscapes. So I connect with you on that point. Yep. Uh, and it's, it's definitely a great hobby to have and something that, you know, I think a lot more people should do. Yeah. It's very, it's very cool. You, you get to see perspectives. You get to take, you know, photos and videos from perspectives that most people just can't. So it, it opens right. up a whole world for you. That's really cool. Definitely. So uh, now that, you know, once you went through that crazy college trip and, and in the, you know, in the air force came back, graduated and finally had your dream job. Uh, what were some like, of your biggest achievements and also challenges while serving in your 25 career at Boeing? Well, there was, um, there was, uh, there was a lot of stuff that I did and, and, and a lot of um, things that uh, we accomplished. There was also a lot of things that didn't get accomplished. And so that's uh, one of the things I would probably stress is that, you know, out of everything that I worked on uh, over my entire career, I would say maybe, 10 to 15% of them became really successful. So, you know, the vast majority of the stuff that you work on you know, sometimes dies a quick death. Sometimes it's a slow and painful one, but, <laughs> but just doesn't get anywhere, especially in research and development. And that's just the nature of the beast, you know? Um, some of the stuff that, that I really enjoyed working on um, and some of my, my uh, best accomplishments I can't even talk about. So, I mean, that was, you know, we have that world too that, that, that we live in and, and they're just things that, that we can't talk about. But, you know, I will say this, probably um, two of the things that, that were biggest in, in my career um, was one was a manufacturing development program um, in which we uh, worked on building very large scale um, composites and working on some innovative assembly techniques. Nice. And, and the thing about that particular program was not so much the technology. I, I like the technology and the technology was very interesting and very useful and has spread throughout Boeing, but it was really about the team. And, and I guess that's one of the things, if you guys follow me on LinkedIn with laminate life, I really try to stress is it's really about the people um, and and it, it truly is. Um, the team that we had on that particular program was really focused on the goal and was really willing to do whatever was necessary to achieve that. Um, was really interested in working together, um, jumping in wherever there was a need and, and just helping each other out to be able to achieve that. And that's, that's always a great thing to be able to, it's not common unfortunately i wish it was i i wish every team that i ever worked on was like that but but it's not that way a lot of times people have their own agendas and they may be at uh, di you know differing agendas than what the overall program has and um, people trying to build up their own empires you know within <laughs> companies and things like that and it just yeah it, it, it you tend to have a lot of different motivations in people and um 
you know, people may get along okay, but it's not the same as everybody really working together and believing in the goal, which was, was the case in this one particular uh, production manufacturing program. Uh, and the other thing that I would say point to in my career was the, the development of, of the 5320-1 resin system. So that was a, a DARPA program that was uh, won by a couple people at uh, Boeing, Jim Thomas and Gil Hahn. And I actually took over um, as principal investigator on that program after they won it, um, primarily because um, Jim Thomas had moved to Italy. But uh, <laughs> so his loss or gain, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> Uh, and um, so we, we, we ran through that program. Um, the Air Force basically was, was running that, helping, uh, you know, with, the, with DARPA direction. And um, it, it, the idea was to develop uh, an, an out-of-autoclave, vacuum bag-only um, composite material system uh, that would be equivalent to the autoclave systems that were current at that state-of-the-art state at the time. And um, the thing that really made this program was really the partnership. And it, it was a true partnership between the material supplier, which was SciTech at the time, now Solve, and um, Boeing. And the fact that, that we actually failed to begin with. Um, we had a resin system that, that actually worked um, at a lab scale, but then when they scaled it up to production size, uh, there were problems. And uh, that's the reason why there's a dash one after 5320. It's, it, it originally started at 5320 and uh, they had to go to a dash one. Um, so like, like all great stories, right? You, you have uh, difficulties and challenges that have to be overcome. And uh, we did. And that was really a true team effort um, between Boeing and Solvay working extremely closely together. Um, being them, Solvay listening to Boeing's needs uh, us listening to Solvay's, you know, basically what, 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 what's doable, what's, what can be done, and uh, kind of coming to a compromise of things that, that generated a material system that now has really kind of taken off and is um, used in a lot of different places and companies and applications. So it's just, you know, when you strike out, um, you know, 90% of the time, when you hit a home run, it feels really good. So that one was a home run. And that's, so that's, that's one of the things that, that I feel good about in my career. It's amazing. Such a great story. And I guess at Texas Guadalupe, we can relate on that uh, point of looking for manufacturing methods that are out of autoclave. And I guess for our listeners that aren't very familiar with composite materials and manufacturing, if you could explain the importance and value of having a out of autoclave uh, resin system. Sure. Yeah. So um, typically composites are uh, thermal setting composites, at least are, are typically cured in an autoclave, which means that they're cured with heat and pressure. Um, the, the autoclaves are extremely expensive. And um, if you can get rid of that so that you can cure it just in an oven and the only pressure that you have on it is the vacuum bag itself. So 14 ish PSI pushing down instead of needing hundred PSI, for instance, in an autoclave. Um, it, uh, it is a, a significant cost savings um, in capital costs. You don't have to buy the autoclave. An oven is much cheaper than, than an autoclave. And it opens up a whole supplier base of um, lower cost labor of, of suppliers who 
don't have the resources to have large autoclaves, but could purchase an oven. Um, it also allows you to use, um, in, in this particular case, at least 5320-1, um, it, it can cure at, at temperatures as low as 200 degrees Fahrenheit, which allows you to use low, low, low cost tooling uh, for prototyping. And then if you wanna move to production, you can invest in your tools after the design is kind of stabilized. So it allows a lot of process fl flexibility. It allows um, lower uh, initial costs upfront and uh, reduces the overall costs uh, in the life cycle. Well, definitely a more uh, accessible, you made it more accessible uh, for people to use composite materials. So that's a great achievement. So sort of to like a more general question, what are they, like what is composites good for and what are composites not good for? <laughs> Well, you know, I, I actually like that second question better than the first question, because um, I don't know if you guys have seen my composite truisms, but but the number one, the very first fly down is just because you can build something out of composites doesn't mean that you should, right? Um, so composites are really good for in-plane loads. So if you have something that is loaded in an XY kind of plane with very little of Z direction kind of, of loads, um, composites are really good for that. So like skins of, of aircraft or, or, or um, you know, any kind of uh, aerospace platform, skins are really good. Um, things like uh, landing gear, where you have um, uh, loads in almost any particular direction is not really that good for composites because um, composites typically uh, are only good, uh, well, mostly good in the direction of the fiber. So the fiber is what is really carrying the load and the fiber is typically in plane, not out of plane. So um, composites are, are, you know, there's a lot of advantages to them. There's fatigue advantages, um, there's uh, corrosion advantages, um, there's life cycle inspection advantages, things like that. Um, but there's disadvantage to them too. They're, they're definitely higher cost uh, initial, the, the, the material you know, system is probably somewhere in the mm, 70 to $100 a pound versus four to $5 a pound for aluminum. So, I mean, there's you know, huge differences wow. in, in the cost up front. Um, on the other hand, um, composites are an additive um, process. It's not subtractive. So you're not going to take a big billet of, of composites and hog it out to the shape that you want, like you would with aluminum. So um, your buy to fly ratio is typically better. So you kind of have to think about that in, in looking at the overall cost of it as well. But there's, there's definitely areas where composites shine um, in areas where it's mostly planar loaded. Um, and if there's fatigue limitations and things like that, um, and, and weight critical structure, um, I think composites definitely have a place, but they do not have a place everywhere. Not yet. And, and, and I don't know that we'll ever get there. Um, as a material scientist, um, I, I, I believe in choosing the right material for the right application. Yeah, it's interesting because I've seen like new new age space companies like Firefly and Rocket Lab. They're starting to use like, composite rockets. Um, mm -hmm. Anything like about that and why that might be? Yeah, it's 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 
primarily for for weight. Um, it's that's really the the main reason why. Um, it's not really for uh, fatigue because it's uh, in general it's it's not reusable. I, I, maybe this, maybe some of their stuff is reusable, but uh, um, I, I would say primarily it's uh, it's being it's being driven by weight. So it's extremely expensive to put you know a pound of mass in, into orbit. And so every pound that you don't have to launch off the ground is maybe a pound more of payload that you can deliver. So um, any kind of weight savings that you can get in the, the, uh, the actual rocket structure is, uh, is going to help you a lot. So I, I imagine that's probably why they're, why they're heading that direction. Definitely. So after your, <clears throat> after your 25 year career at Boeing, we see now that you've moved on as a technical fellow, it seems in like a similar capacity with Solvay. Could you talk yeah. a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. I'm, I get to see the world from the other side now. Um, so, so whereas Solvay, you know, I was the customer of Solvay. Now, you know, Boeing and everybody else is, is now my customer. So um, I, I get to see a much bigger breadth of customers. So interactions with Lockheed and Northrop and Airbus and, you know, everybody else, um, which is great. It's, uh, you know, as an aviation geek, I, I love that kind of stuff. Um, but um, it, it's also, I, I have to learn Solvay's portfolio. Uh, I know it fairly well, but, um, but being able to, to understand um, what everything that the Solvay has to offer and how best it can help the customers is, uh, is, is really what, I, what I'm about right now. It, it is interesting that, that since I have 26 years experience of, of, of in the aerospace world and getting stuff certified, I do... I can help our customers approach stuff in a, in a much more practical sense. A lot of um, a lot of my colleagues at Solvay are great in materials, but don't necessarily have the practical experience of of building structure, getting structure certified, things like that. And so that's one of the things that that I can help bring to the table. I want to rewind a little bit. Twenty six years is like a long time to stay at one company. So I'm wondering, <laughs> sort of what what you loved about Boeing and why you chose to stay that long? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, you know, one of the things about Boeing, and it's probably true about any of the large aerospace companies, is it's really more of a conglomerate of, of seven or eight different companies. And so <clears throat> one of the things that I really liked about Boeing was that I had a lot of opportunity, different opportunities within the company. I didn't really have to leave the company in order to, to get those opportunities. So um, I, I started out in, um, in Phantom Works um, doing research and development, um, moved to the defense side of things and supported the F-18, um, moved to um, back into Phantom Works and did some other projects uh, moved into commercial airplanes and helped with the 787 and lived in Italy for about six months, helping Alenia out. Nice. Um, moved back into what was now called Boeing Research and Technology, doing more R&D and got to play in, in lots of different areas. Um, rotorcraft, spacecraft, commercial airplanes, defense airplanes, unmanned, manned, um, Horizon X I helped with. Um, you know, so because of the breadth of Boeing and, and all the many different opportunities that it offered, 
um, it just really didn't seem to make much sense to, to go anywhere else. I, um, I enjoyed my time in St. Louis. Um, my wife was from there and, and her family was there. Um, so, um, she wasn't really too crazy about moving anywhere. So <laughs> that was another aspect, but, uh, I, I was, Italy. well, she, yeah, she went to Italy. She went to Italy, but she was not too happy about it. Actually, <laughs> it was a very tough assignment. Actually, that was, uh, it was, um, it was a part of Italy that was very rural. Uh, very few people spoke English. We spoke very little Italian and I was working 14 to 16 hours a day, wow. um, six, six, six and seven days a week. Um, so it, she basically never saw me. She had two little kids and she was kind of there by, by herself. So, uh, not a good assignment for her. She was happy to get back to St. Louis. <laughs> wow. Yeah, not, not the picturesque Italy that you think of. No, 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 definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we enjoyed our, our time there at, at times, you know, when, when we got opportunities to it, just that 77 right. program was so crazy. I, I just wasn't there that much. And I would go to, I would go to work in the morning, come back in the evening and I, I could have been anywhere in the world. I mean, it was dark. I, I, I could have, you know, and a factory is a factory. It, it just, it didn't seem like I was in Italy, you know, other than the fact you would pass tractors on the highway. That, that was something that was a little different. <laughs> so, so, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just, I was just going to ask, uh, with all this uh, career progression and working so hard at Boeing, uh, what was that one thing that just kept you motivated? Because obviously you had a family and kids that, you know, loved and cared about at home, but also your work that seemed to be taking a lot of your time. What, what kind of like uh, kept you motivated just to keep on pushing and stay, your, stay in that career for so long? Yeah, it's a good question. Sometimes I ask myself the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the work-life balance is really tough to get. I'm not sure that I've ever gotten it and maybe I never will. Um, there's been times in my life, the, the Italy thing was definitely too much on the work side. Um, getting that right and, and making sure that you take care of all your needs is, is, is tough. Um, the thing that probably kept me going the most was um, the fact that every day when I go into work, and, and it's still even kind of true with Solvay, but definitely with Boeing. I never, every day is different. And I never, I wouldn't say never, rarely did I have a day that went according to how I thought it was going to go. <laughs> like oh. I would go in the morning and say, this is my plan. This is what I'm going to do. And then, you know, by nine o'clock, I'm completely off on a different thing. So, um, you just never knew there were so many different challenges and so many things that would arise uh, that needed attention very quickly um, that you had to kind of prioritize on the fly. And uh, very rarely did I ever work an entire day that went exactly how I thought it was going to go in the morning. And, and that's, it's kind of fun. There, some people don't like that. Some people like mm -hmm. to have a structured and they know exactly what they're going to do. And, uh, and, and, and they don't like changes and they don't like, but I kind of enjoy the challenge of it and, and the fact that things would come up on the fly and I would have to jump in the middle of a fire. So, wow. That's interesting because I feel like your time at the air force was super, it was probably super structured. Yeah. And like same. Defined. And then you just described sort of organized chaos at Boeing. Yeah. <laughs> organized chaos. That's a great way to describe it. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> So sort of back to the Air Force, what do you think about that 
your time there like taught you the discipline? Was it was it the structure and like the the scheduling? Well, you know, to be honest, I, I think probably the 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 probably ninety percent of the benefit that I got out of it was the first six or eight weeks, the basic training. So that's extremely structured. Um, you basically can't do anything at any time without you know them knowing and and actually they've got it all mapped out for you anyway you, you you don't get to decide anything while you're there you're told exactly where to be when to be and what to do um but um what it did do was teach me a lot about self-discipline and it also taught me about limits um that that we set on ourselves so you know and and the air force uh, basic training is certainly not nearly as you know physical as as army or, or the marines um, but there was still enough there to push me to realize that a lot of the times when I said I didn't, or when I thought I couldn't do something, it really was just me thinking that and wasn't mm -hmm. really true. So I would say the, the basic training, the first six to eight weeks was probably, you know, 90% of, of, of the benefit that I got personally, um, from the air force. And then what sort of, what is a technical fellow? What is a technical fellow? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> that was my first interaction with that job title. So I was curious. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, a fellow is not, um, it's not something that is probably in our common language, you know. So um, it is somebody who is recognized by an organization or a company as being um, an expert in their field. And uh, Boeing has a, a fellowship um, program that I think a lot of companies have now adopted different fellowship programs. Solvay has a, a fellowship program um, of different levels of, of, um, of fellowship. So I started out as an associate technical fellow, uh, ATF. And, and in that Boeing's uh, description of what an ATF is would be that you are considered an expert in your field at your site. So like St. Louis would have considered me an expert in composites, okay? Um, for technical fellow, you're considered, uh, if you're considered an expert by the company. So across Boeing, they would recognize okay. me as an expert in composites as a technical fellow. And then they have senior technical fellow, um, which is across industry. So if, if industry considers you to be an expert, for instance, for me as a, as a composites material person, um, then, then I could, you know, could have achieved senior technical fellow. They, they've actually added some additional uh, levels since, since then, uh, but those were basically the, the three levels and, and kind of what they mean. So, so an associate technical fellow, expert in your field at a site, technical fellow, expert in your field across the company, senior tech fellow, Across industry. So, so you're still, you're working towards a senior technical fellow right now? Yes, that's, that is one of my goals for Solvay. Um, it's a little bit murkier to me because I'm just now, I mean, I only started with Solvay in November, so I'm still mm -hmm. trying to figure out exactly what the process is and what the requirements are, what the qualifications are become a senior tech fellow for, uh, for Solvay, but that that's very much uh, something that I would like to do. So what is your day-to-day -day work life look like right now? Is it still a lot of engineering or is it more management? What does that look like? 
It's mostly engineering, which I like. I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, I never really wanted to be a manager. Um, I enjoy working with people, but I enjoy, what I really enjoy doing is, is troubleshooting and fixing problems. So when, um, and that's kind of what I'm doing right now with, with Solvay is if there's issues at suppliers, if they're having problems building parts, uh, they'll pull me in to, to get my opinion on what's going on. Um, if they're, that's one aspect of it, which I really enjoy. The other aspect that, that is um, a big part of what I do is what is the future going to look like and how can we, what should we be developing? What kinds of resins, what kind of fibers, what sorts of, of needs uh, does the market going to have in, in five to 10 years and how can Solvay be positioned to meet those needs? Such a valuable role to have. Uh, and I, I don't think we've, we've talked about it yet, but um, we noticed the laminate life and then we have the, the rule of composite. It looks like the Ten Commandments for composites. Could you <laughs> talk a little bit more about uh, what you do at uh, laminatelife.com and, and your motivation behind that? Yeah, that's <laughs> so what, what, what that is, is that's, that's kind of the, the fine arts uh, English part of me coming out, right? So. <laughs> So, uh, and also I have, I will tell you this and, and those who know me will, will attest to this, that I have kind of a weakness for dad jokes. So, I'm, <laughs> so, so, um, the, the composite truisms kind of started it all off, which is the, the, the ply table that you see behind me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I put that on out on LinkedIn and it was, I was surprised by what reactions there were to it. It was very well received. And, and I think what, what I tried to do is blend humor and truth. <laughs> and and um, for the people who have experienced composites, they can, they can read through that stuff and, you know, their heads are nodding because they're like, yeah, I lived through that. I've, I know exactly what that means. Um, but but is, it's also a good way to share uh, my experiences. And that's um, kind of what Laminate Life is about, is, is about helping each other. And so, um, you know, when, when there's things, lessons that I've learned that, that I can maybe, you know, help someone else to learn, um, I would like to do that. It's, it's a good thing to learn from your own mistakes. It's a great thing to learn from someone else's. And, and right. so, you know, if, if I can throw some stuff out there that people, you know, that I've experienced that I've, you know, failed at and learned from, and then people can maybe learn from it without having to fail themselves, that's, that's a great thing. So is this, uh, I've noticed this theme throughout your career of wanting to give back, wanting to help, uh, you know, other engineers and, and just people that you care about. Is that one of those motive, that motivation to uh, give back a part of the reason um, why you became a, I see that you're a, a SAMP fellow. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. I don't know if it's SAMP, but Society for the Advancement of Material and Process Engineering, and as well as a fellow of the Academy of Sciences at St. Louis. Right. Yeah, so that's SAMPI. Um, SAMPI is, is an or, a worldwide organization of uh, materials and process engineers, primarily composite focused. Um, used to be very heavily aerospace focused and, and is still pretty aerospace, but, but opening up to, to more and more fields now, I think. Um, but yes, I would say that, that probably one of the, the biggest things of my career that I enjoy doing is teaching and mentoring. So um, I, I really... Um, enjoy being able to share um, what I've learned with, uh, with other people and, and to help them advance their careers as well. 
So it's not something that I typically do as kind of a formal thing, but I'm, I'm pretty informal about stuff. And so that's why I welcome people and I get people almost daily IMing me in LinkedIn with questions about stuff. And it can be about anything. It can be a, a technical question. It can be a question about a job or a career, um, whatever. And if there's, you know, things that, that people want to bounce off me, you know, I'm happy to, sh to share. Um, I've had a lot of people in my career help me along the way. I'm not where I am because of who I am. You know, I'm, I'm here because there's been so many other people who have taken an interest in my career and helped me along the way. And so I want to pay, pay some of that back. Amazing. Well, I think that's how we found you is your real message to you. And then, yeah. So we appreciate that. It's really cool. Yeah, no problem at all. Happy, happy to be here. Happy to help. We love having you as a guest. Definitely a very interesting conversation thus far. Uh, we were talking, you mentioned how in your current role with Solvay, you're a little bit more focused on the future and developing the position of Solvay as a company uh, for the future. And since uh, I've seen, I've been following Solvay on LinkedIn as well as yourself. And I see that uh, unmanned uh, aero mobility is part of that future. Um, and I don't know how far in depth you can go, but just if you could share what, you know, what you understand, what you see of that space in that market, uh, that would be definitely something that we, we love here at Texas Guadalupe. We're all about more efficient transportation systems and technologies. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I think that, uh, Solvay rec rec uh, recognizes, um, the future potential of, um, urban air mobility, mm -hmm. advanced air mobility, um, Hyperloop, what, whatever, you know, form the, the future of transportation is going to look like. And, and my guess is that it's going to be a mix of it all. It's not going to be a winner take all. It's going to be a blend of, of this, of all these things. Um, you know, one of the things that I see as, as sort of a, a common thread is the need for very weight efficient structure, especially for the advanced air, air mobility folks, just because power density of batteries is not, not where, um, you know, the uh, fossil fuels are right now. Um, obviously there's a lot of battery technology and improvements that have come over the, you know, even the past couple of years or so, um, and they will continue. Um, nevertheless, I believe that uh, weight of the, the, uh, the platforms is going to be critical and uh, composites can definitely help with that. Um, at the same time, we need to be able to produce structure in a cost-effective manner and we need to be able to support it in the field. Um, you know, be, as, an, as the owner of a 1978 Grumman Tiger, I can attest to how beat up stuff gets, even when you have a care careful owner, you know? And so can you only imagine what air ta taxis might look like after a few years out in the field? So right. we need to have structure that's, that's robust, um, certifiable, repairable, maintainable. It's not just about creating the structure initially. It's got it. You got to mm -hmm. look through the whole life cycle and actually even beyond the life cycle to, you know, we, we talk about cradle to grave. Well, beyond the grave, and we're talking recycling and, and how do we, how do we, how do we, you know, keep these platforms out of our landfills and turn them into something, you know, more useful after their life is, is done as a urban air mobility pl platform. So I see all of those things kind of playing I think Solvay is, is well positioned for the initial 
um, round right now. We have material systems that are out there that are already characterized and have full allowables and are basically just kind of pull them off the shelf and, and mm -hmm. run with them. But I do think that uh, in the future, um, higher modulus carbon fibers is going to be a player. I think that uh, VBO vacuum bag only stuff is going to continue to be important. Um, I think that automated um, processes to be able to repeatedly and quickly and efficiently build structure will also be a, a major factor as well. So things like AFP? Yeah, AFP, um, stamp forming, um, um, ATL, there's, you know, there's lots of different ways. Um, you know, it, it's, I know that one of the things that people are, are pursuing is, is uh, additive manufacturing, 3D yeah. printing, and 3D printing of continuous fibers, it's, it's called AFP. That's what, <laughs> we've, we've actually done that for a long time, right? We, didn't, we don't call it additive manufacturing. We don't call it, well, it is additive, but it's not 3D printing. Uh -huh. um, but AFP essentially is, you know, building up, you know, kind of layer by layer of, of, um, of a material with continuous fibers. So I think there's going to be more technologies like that coming out. There's going to be mm -hmm. more processes, more automation going to be um, put into this, not only to reduce costs, but to also ensure repeatability, because that's, that's going to be a big one. You're, you're going to have to build not just maybe 10 or even 100 a year, but maybe 1,000 or 10,000 a year. And we're getting closer and closer to an automotive kind of approach in, in aerospace. And I can see kind of aerospace and automotive almost blending together. Um, automotive now picking up a lot of the carbon composites and things like that with, with BMW um, and, and aerospace borrowing from automotive to get to the higher rates. So in terms of lifespan, do composites have a similar lifespan to like a steel in terms of what you're like, saying? Like I'm sorry, you said a lifespan similar to what? Like a steel or aluminum. Oh, steel. Yeah, well, um, I would say that their, their lifespan, if they're properly designed and kept below the limit load for you know, any fatigue issues, they're essentially infinite. So there is no, no lifespan um, other than you know, some kind of damage that's been caused to it, external impact or something like that. But as far as a fatigue or corrosion limiting, um, there's none of that with the composites. So uh, you were talking about, and I've, I've noticed that Solvay is really big on sustainability and, and just being aware and conscious of the impact that their technology has on the environment. As a private pilot, you know, I'm sure you're very aware of that to yourself, you know, having to be aware of of birds and, and just the weather in general. So I guess from, from that perspective of a private pilot, what do you, what other challenges besides uh, manufacturing do you see in the electronic vertical takeoff and launch vehicles, such as air taxis that are being developed right now? Yeah. So I think there's, um, I think there's, a, there's quite a few challenges that, that are out there that are going to have to be met. Um, I think, Certification of, of platforms and integration of uh, both um, manned and autonomous vehicles into uh, the national and international airspace is going to be mm -hmm. very interesting. Um, it'll be interesting <laughs> to see how, how they do that. As a private pilot myself, I'm, I'm very concerned about, you know, congestion of, of airspaces and, and uh, you know, I, I love to meet pilots, but let's not do it in the middle of the air, okay? I mean, uh -huh. that's... <laughs> <laughs> 
crash into so, somebody's drone. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, some of the, some of that is, is there. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, looking at the, at the whole picture and, and not just, you know, can we build these, these um, platforms, but what are we going to do with these platforms? How are we going to support them? How are we going to maintain them? And what are we going to do with them when we're done with them um, is, is important things that, 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 and some challenges I think that we really need to look at. Um, and to be honest, I think we probably are going to get there with the composites. I, I think the, the batteries and this, and the other systems um, may be a bigger challenge in, in, a, in a recycling standpoint. Um, I'm no battery expert, but it, but it looks to me as if that, that might be a bigger challenge than the composites itself. But all of that needs to be taken into consideration. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's something that, uh, you know, Tesla could, you were talking about this cross collaboration between right. aerospace and uh, yep. car manufacturers. That's something that as far as battery technology is right. that Tesla's working on. Exactly. Yep. So the future does look bright. Um, oh yeah. This is, I, I gotta say, this is a, a tremendously exciting time to be, to be around materials and, and aerospace aviation. Um, there's just all kinds of new things that are, that are out there. Um, it's in some ways, it kind of reminds me of sort of the early 1990s and, and some of the internet boom stuff where you had a lot of software companies out there developing stuff that, that nobody had ever really heard of. And, and this, mm -hmm. this company that, that started selling books online is now one of the major, you know, Amazon, um, is, yeah. is, is now, you know, huge, right. And sells everything. Um, you know, Google, you, you get, you, I use that search engine before anybody even knew what it was. And, and, and now it's, you know, alphabet is all over the place. Right. So, um, who knows where, where this is going to go, but it is an exciting time. It is interesting though, that, that one of the challenges I think that they're going to run into, um, all these different companies. And I think there's probably over 150 of them that, that are doing urban air mobility mm -hmm. is, um, the market cannot sustain that that number of, of companies. I don't I don't believe uh, some of them are, are just going to naturally drop out. And the thing is, when you're building flying platforms, it's not just whatever you can devise on a computer that works. It, you have to deal with physics, you know, and and real world stuff. So it's um, I, I think in some ways it's it's like um, I think SpaceX has kind of experienced some of this. Um, it's not easy. <laughs> this job is, is not easy. Um, I think they can do it. I think they'll get there. Um, but I think there's going to be a lot more challenges than maybe a lot of people realize. Oh, for sure. Well, I'm wondering outside of Solvay, um, is there like a certain project or vehicle using composites that you're most excited about? Ooh, <laughs> that's, that's a good question. Ah, uh, um, Wow, I, I don't know that I have any one particular um, project. I, I see a lot of of um, a lot of companies mm -hmm. looking into composites that maybe wouldn't have otherwise because of the VBO and because of the fact that we can get out of the autoclave. I think is is really opened it up to a lot of people, um, and I think that people who are looking at um, new processes and, and, and new materials in ways that we haven't really before thought of traditionally of, of applying them. Um, you know, scaled composites is one of the, the great examples of, of being, you know, kind of out of the box thinkers in, in the ways of composites. Um, 
And, and I think that a lot of uh, the new urban air mobility or advanced air mobility folks are coming along and looking at that and saying, yeah, we can do that or we can even go one better. And so um, I'm not sure that I necessarily have one particular project that I, that I have my eye on. I'm just kind of seeing the industry as a whole um, really starting to innovate in some things. And uh, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, that's cool. And being in it for 27, 26 years, you've probably seen it grow a lot. Yeah, uh, for sure. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. And, and yet it, it is also interesting that, that, that some of the, the, the challenges that we overcame, you know, 20, 30 years ago are still challenges that have to be overcome today. Um, you know, in some ways we still relearn the same lessons. Wow. That's one of the reasons why I, I like to do the laminate life is because I want to kind of get those lessons out there for people that maybe they don't have to relearn them, that they, they can just, you know, press on from there. So in your career, what, you know, looking back on it now, what would be like the one biggest piece of advice you would give to 22 year old Gary? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. Um, if you could, you know, travel back in time and talk to yourself, I guess. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think probably, um, the thing that I probably would want to work on most and probably didn't do very well in my early career was listen. Um, so, you know, I, I think that there's, there's really two steps to, to innovation. Um, I hate to break it down so simplistically because it's, it's much more complicated than that. But if you want to innovate on something, it's, I don't know if you guys ever saw, there's, there was a, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years ago, a, an animated a CGI movie called Robots. And um, it, it's got in there a, a guy who's a great inventor and his motto is see a need, fill a need. And I think most people want to jump right to the fill a need because that's the cool part. That's the, that's the hands-on, that's the innovation part of it, right? But you really need to see that need first you have to, to 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 observe and you know we've been we've been designed with with two eyes and two ears and only one mouth so we should be talking like 20 percent and observing 80 percent of the time and and um i i think we kind of get that upside down a, a lot and and uh so innovation i think starts with kind of an act of humility that you have to there you go <laughs> there it is <laughs> That's exactly what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so the solution to every technical challenge starts with two essential pieces of equipment, right? So you got, you got these and you also got your eyes. So you need to, you need to observe. You need to listen and, and observe. And um, when you do that, um, you are essentially humbling yourself. You're saying, I don't know everything. I don't know what the need is. I'm not sure what, what, what the problem is to solve. Mm -hmm. You first of all have to identify what the problem is before you can go solve it, right? So um, I, I think it's what I would probably advise myself, my 22-year-old, my well, actually 29 when I started my career at McDonnell Douglas, but um, I would say, um, you know, listen and, and watch. And, um, and it's not just the, the things that are happening um, at work, but, but do it in, in, in the rest of your life as well. It's surprising how many times I've, I've had things that I'm just walking, you know, outside or I'm, I'm, I'm working in the house or whatever. And some, something just clicks that what I'm doing or what I'm thinking about or what I'm looking at could have an, uh, an applicability to something at work. So being able to kind of observe 
things that are around you and absorb that and then be able to make the connections to a problem is, uh, is really the key and, and something that, that I've kind of learned over years. I'm definitely not perfect in it, but uh, something that I wish I had started a little bit earlier. I was just going to say, there's a lot of funny dad joke t-shirts on there too. So <laughs> definitely check it out. Yeah. yeah if you have a sick, sick uh, sense of humor, you might enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think we've taken up a good amount of your time, probably eager to get back. Um, I want to thank you so much for coming on and, and for being so open on LinkedIn and responding to people and keep posting those, those pictures that make me jealous. Of course. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today, Gary. Appreciate it. Uh, it I appreciate the, the invitation and the opportunity to talk with you guys. It's been great. I wish you guys all the best um, and uh, we'll continue to follow the, uh, the Guadalupe and, and all, the guy, all the work you guys are doing. Yeah.